Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. How much training and experience do GPs have when it comes to sexual health and older people? For me, I can't recall this coming up in the endless years of training, and so like many other things, I've probably just had to learn on the job. With media stories of increasing rates of STIs in older people and efforts to encourage older people to go and speak to their GP about sexual health, we decided to get some experts in to deep breath in to talk about it. So we're joined by Sharon Hinchcliffe and Rebecca Mawson to give us some tips. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP and clinical editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined by my co-hosts uh, Jenny and Navjoy again. Uh, hi Jenny, how are you? Hi, I'm Will Tom. Thank you. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. I'm looking forward to this topic. Very much so. Are you comfortable on, on talking about sexual health in general mm. and with older people? Comfortable? I don't know. I'm sure there are there is lots that I could learn, and I'm really looking forward okay. to the conversation today. But this is something I have um, certainly been familiar with for a long time. Okay. Well, I'm going to come out and say I'm a highly repressed individual who, who doesn't feel very comfortable <laughs> on these things. So uh, I, I'm, in, yeah, trying to approach this in a positive, um, you know, positive way and sort of personal uh, growth. Um, Navjoy, hi. Hi, hi everyone. My name's Navjoy Larger. I'm a locum GP uh, in London and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And yeah, and your your kind of comfort level here? Um, yeah, I, I guess just echoing what you guys have said. Like, I feel like obviously as a GP, it's something that comes up in, um, in consultations, but, um, reading the article, uh, that, um, Sharon and Becky co-authored, I think, um, that there's lots to, lots to learn. And I think lots of useful tips and lots of things that it made me reflect on about, um, you know, uh, when and with which patients, you know, I, tend to kind of where I'm inquiring and where I'm more passive and kind of waiting to follow the patient's lead. So I think, mm. yeah, really, really excited to get into this uh, conversation for sure. So shall we meet our experts and, and authors from, from that article in the BMJ recently? Um, Sharon, hi. Hi, <laughs> tell us about yourself. What, uh, where do you work and what, how did you get into this, um, this specialty and get interested in this area? Okay, so I'm Sharon Inchliff, uh, Professor of Psychology and Health at the University of Sheffield um, in the Division of Nursing and Midwifery. And I guess I've been working in this area for quite a long time. I started in 2001, which makes me feel really, really old now. um, I joined straight out of my PhD, joined a a project that was led by Professor Meringot at the University of Sheffield that looked at sexual health and quality of life across the adult life course. So um, a mixed, method, mixed methods piece of research, spent a lot of time collecting data using the WHOQAL and also conducting interviews on a one-on-one basis with lots of people, particularly age 50 and older, and listening to their stories about their sexual health and well-being uh, and quality of life and issues they were experiencing and any sort of obstacles to seeking care. And um, it was really eye-opening. I was quite young at the time and Viagra had just been sort of released in the UK for public consumption, although it was limited to a very few uh, mm. uh, set of individuals. So the, there was a lot of discussion about Viagra around then. The men were saying, how can I get it? The women were saying, where is my version of Viagra? Mm. <laughs> and interestingly, we've done carried on doing the research over that 20-year period and uh, I still get asked those questions now. Right, so the same, the same things coming up. So you must have spoken to um, hundreds of people about... Oh, about... gosh, probably. Probably <laughs> thousands, actually. When you think about the data collected, looking at data from national surveys, I've had the privilege to be part of uh, some European and other international surveys on this topic as well. Mm. So it's quite interesting that you hear the same things coming up, yeah. despite the geographical spread and despite the sort of, uh, sort of lapse in time as well. Mm. Okay, well, we'll ask you more about that soon. Uh, And just to meet our other guest, uh, Rebecca, hi. 
Hi, lovely to meet you. Thank you for having us on here. It's lovely to do a podcast talking about sex um, at last. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'm a GP, uh, GP up in Sheffield. I work in the north of Sheffield. Um, And I'm also just recently started as a clinical lecturer in primary medical care um, in the academic unit primary care at Sheffield. Um, And... I've always been interested in sexual reproductive health all the way through my my sort of training. I did obs and gynae initially and then went into general practice. And all the way through general practice, I've kind of done my diploma in sexual reproductive health. It's always been an area that I particularly enjoyed. Um, and then as I've sort of come through training, I sort of got more, went sort of more down the academic route. Um, and my research is always looking at sexual reproductive health inequality. And so anywhere, any member of society that struggles to access sexual reproductive health. So at the moment, I'm looking at um, ethnic minority women and their struggles with um, uh, access to contraception services. Um, But we also look at the LGBT community and um, ageing population and comorbidities is kind of part of that area of people that really struggle to access, especially through general practice. Um, And I did my MD probably over the last five years and um, as I was doing my, my big sort of uh, qualitative synthesis there were four articles that kind of came up as being particularly good and I noticed there was this lady you know um, Sharon who'd been writing them and um, and I sort of emailed her saying oh can I can I come meet you you know we're both at the University of Sheffield and um, I suddenly realised what an amazing sort of um, sort of leader in the area Sharon was when it came to kind of ageing and, and sexual well-being. And she's very kindly sort of mentored me and, and sort of and sort of pulled me along the way um, when it comes to um, sexual well-being and, and the ageing population. So, um, yeah, massive thanks to Sharon because she's the one that's probably opened my eyes and, and probably pushed my comfort zone. I'd say I'm quite comfortable with talking about sex, but she's definitely helped me push my own comfort levels to to try and improve access for, for my own patients. So that's how we oh, kind of got to where we are. <laughs> and Sharon, uh, you're blushing, crying a little I'm bit. Blushing, yeah, yes, blushing, blushing yeah. thank you. <laughs> oh, that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> she's a Wonder Woman. She doesn't sell herself enough. She's a Wonder oh, Woman in this area. So, definitely, um, definitely. You know. well, I, I, you, yeah. Well, just reading the article and working with you, Sharon, has been brilliant. So, and... Um, why don't we talk straight away about the? I, I can see in the background of the screen there. People obviously listen, <coughs> listeners can't see this, but there's no. an exhibition you did about ten years ago about this. Yes, yes. So uh, the exhibition called "The Age of Love" was uh, something that we did. I think it was 2018, so uh, just a few years ago. And then we we sort of uh, exhibited again in 2019, and we're hoping to take it on the on the road. We want to take it on the road. But that was an exhibition called "The Age of Love" with uh, Sheffield artist Pete McKee. And that came about because at the University of Sheffield they have something called Festival of the Mind where they encourage their academics to work with creatives and digital artists from the Sheffield and South Yorkshire region. And um, I don't know if the listeners will know about Pete's work, but one of these most... I think if they're from Sheffield, I... they will. They will from Sheffield. <laughs> Anyone, yeah. Yeah. Anyone from Sheffield will know. He's a, he's a, a big name in Sheffield. <laughs> he's a big name, isn't he? And, yeah, and he's got this sort of image, it's called um, Frank and Joy, and it's this older couple. I'm trying to show you the images now, but it won't work on a podcast, will it? Uh, but they're on the side of the pub, and uh, it's called The Snog, and I saw that, and I just thought that just encapsulates the work that I do so, so beautifully. So I just reached out to Pete and see if he would work with me to present my research in a way that individuals could identify with outside of academia, um, uh, outside of the sort of traditional kind of trappings of academia. So um, taking the key findings from my research, we did the exhibition. It was very well received. People came and viewed the 12 images that told a story of Frank and Joy, who were an older couple who were um, trying to deal with a sexual problem but we did it in a way that had light humour and the sort of images are something that people can identify with, I think. So we got a lot of positive feedback about that and it helped to raise awareness about this topic that is quite taboo, I think, in society. Yeah, and I think Frank and Frank and Joy are like your absolute um, kind of classic Sheffield couple. You know, like he's got his flat cap and um, she's got her sort of her Mac on, and they just got this. They haven't. They're probably are they in their sixties or seventies? Maybe seventies. Yeah, yeah, late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, and but the snog is like this. You know, this real passionate embrace on, and it's gigantic mural <laughs> um, on the side of a pub. So as you're driving through the centre of Sheffield, you're just hit with this like 
gigantic snog and I just think it it helps to sort of um destigmatize like you know it's okay to have a passionate snog you know it's it, it's great like that's what we're trying to encourage isn't it so um yeah brilliant. and the exhibition has been was really brilliant to, to have a wander around Jenny um I'm aware that you might not have been to Sheffield or know much about <laughs> Sheffield <laughs> No, but I was actually thinking that even the terminology that you're using for the garments they're wearing are just going way over my head. Oh, right. <laughs> Jenny, do you know what a snog is? Though? I was just about to say, I know what a snog is, which, uh, you know, I... But um, yeah, well, Sheffield's like so we're up, we're up north, aren't we? Um, it, it's a it, Sheffield's built on steel, so um, it's a real industrial city. Um, and I think Sheffield is. Kind of, I'm born and bred Sheffield. I, I think we're proud of the fact that we. Um, say it how it is so you know we, you tend to it, you know uh, especially my patients um, where I work I work um, in a sort of little hamlet that's built around a steel industry a steel factory and um, so my patients are just very you know very blunt and they like you to be quite blunt as well so um, yeah that's why I down kind of, to earth. you know down to earth yeah. blunt you know and is that where talk about humour like is it easy to use humour in a consultation then as a GP in Sheffield um, yeah, I mean, it, oh God, it depends on you. It depends on your clientele. Like, um, you know, so so have you heard of the movie Full Monty? The Full Monty that yeah. was obviously filmed in Sheffield. So we've all got a bit of a kind of, um, I guess, a little bit of tongue in cheek when it comes to sex and and sort of having a bit of humour with. It, I think, but obviously there are some groups I work with. You know, um, some from sort of cultural um, cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, faith based communities where you know, sex is a bit more complicated, and um, so that yeah. There's some patients that we use humour with and some that we we it's a very different approach to it. So I think that's one of the challenges of talking about sex, isn't it? Because who how do you talk to who about what, you know? So um but yeah, but I think Sheffield is a is a good place to work and to be doing this work, I think. Brilliant. Well, um I'm gonna try and drag it drag us back to, to my uh, plan for this episode. But uh, <laughs> I thought we should we should do a bit of back, background kind of stuff around you know, you do see in the media, I think that Duncan, our producer, actually came up with the idea for the article by, I think, seeing something on TikTok maybe about STI rates in older people and something like that. I mean, is that is that true? How much, how much of an increase in sexual health problems, including STIs and other things, has there been of late? Um, can you, maybe Sharon, could you kind of give us a bit of an overview there? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been happening for years, honestly. <laughs> There's been increases in the STIs, uh, new diagnoses, year on year until we got to the pandemic and then it kind of went down and then it's just kind of levelling back up. Uh, but it has been an issue. And I think way back in 2008, the Family Planning Association had a, a public awareness campaign about this called the Middle Age Spread. And that was a really interesting campaign of these posters dressed in like 1960s and 70s clothing, just encouraging people to wear a, wear a condom. Um, so I think it is an issue. It's definitely an issue. It keeps in, They do keep increasing, and now specifically in certain groups, um, and it's gonorrhea and syphilis, I think I'm right in saying that, Becky, and in most likely men who have sex with men yeah. as well yeah, yeah. Uh, currently, um, but in the older age groups, yeah, we've got STIs that are increasing. I mean, the increases can be quite sharp as well, but the actual number of people that are getting diagnosed is quite small compared to the younger population. Yeah. And I think like one of the uh, one of the things we're seeing is um, you know you, you might have a sort of um, a man who counts himself as a heterosexual man who's been married to a woman for you know all the you know, last 40, 50 years, and then sadly she passes away, and he maybe realizes his sexuality and you know, starts having sex with men, but has never had the sort of education that maybe younger um, men who have sex with men have now. I think there's you know there's a lot of education now. I think men who have sex with men are pretty savvy about you know vaccinations and about protection um but this generation especially if they've lived a life as a heterosexual man have no clue about you know protection and and infections and they might maybe be accessing um sex through routes that aren't necessarily the safest routes. So, you know, recently heard, uh, you know, of um, someone who, you know, responded to a um, newspaper advert, you know, and then, you know, subsequently met a, a gentleman in a park and, and without protection and, and got infection. So, you know, there's, there is, you know, I think that's the one that's a real areas that 
we, you know, we need to be thinking about, um, but not necessarily an area that's easy to pick up in general practice, you know, um, but it's definitely something to have on your radar if you're examining someone or someone's coming with certain symptoms, you know, especially urinary symptoms, you know, anal symptoms in that sort of older age group, it's definitely worth just very gently asking about, you know, whether there have been any change in sexual partners or, you know, I think it's a really, really important area that gets missed because we just assume, oh, he was married to, you know, Mrs Smith. I've known them for years and she's passed away. You know, we forget that next step, don't we? So it's just a really important area to just keep on the radar, you know, when we're seeing people. There's that sort of um, tension, isn't there, between we're sort of trained to passing recognition and, you know, 20-year-old with discharge, you know, think STI and then, you know, 70-year-old, it's it's very much a lot further back in your mind, but you've got to guard against ruling it out completely just based on their um, age or other characteristics. I suppose that's the, the, the thing we're having to grapple with, isn't it, yeah. in general practice? Yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's one of the real issues with sexual reproductive health in general, in general practice, is that we, you know, we work on stereotypes, we work on these quick decision-making, and those quick decisions are the things that then prevent people having access to good sexual reproductive health care. You know, classic, you know, a, a, young, a young woman wearing a hijab, you know, we automatically assume, oh, she's not sexually active, you know. The, these assumptions that are happening are then stopping us asking the right questions. Um, and I think it's extremely obvious with the work that Sharon does um, in terms of older adults. so I wanted to ask a question along those lines, um, which relates to what you were saying about, you know, um, someone who may have a change in their sexuality after a long-term partner um, dies or is no longer kind of um, as interested in sex or who has a medical condition that interferes. And that is about, um, you know, something you write in the article, which about, about the importance of continuity of care. And I wonder um, if you kind of hear from GPs or in your own experience, how that kind of works out in the sense of, you know, somebody over X number of years and are there concerns about offending somebody? You know, like if they've been in a heterosexual relationship to get, to draw on the example you gave, like is like do people struggle with worrying about? Oh, now I'm going to ask. You know, are you having sex with somebody else? Are you having sex with people of another gender? Um, I'm just curious about how how you um, think about that. Yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, well, looking at the research, we know that um, uh, that can be a, a real issue for for health professionals and GPs. Um, there's the fear of kind of invading someone's privacy if you've known them for a long time, but also about saying the wrong wrong thing and perhaps spoiling or having an impact on the doctor-patient relationship uh, that can cause a bit of an issue. But I think Becky might have a more of an insight from the GP uh, side of things. I think a lot of it comes down to language uh, of like how we talk about about these things and. Um, when I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable, you know, because there are there are there are times that you kind of feel that uncomfortable thing of like I need I know I want to ask this, but I'm starting to get sweaty palms and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to broach this with this person I've known for absolute ages. And, Very um, much so. Yeah, and I always have this thing of I go into the a slight abject, so I go, um, you know. Sometimes when, you know, when, sometimes when someone's lost a partner, they look for new partners. You know, is that something that you're thinking about or is that something you've, you know, you're engaged with? Um, you know, I, I quite commonly will say, you know, if you do, if you are thinking about, um, you know, changing or getting a new sexual partner, it is important that you think about infections because, you know, and kind of go into it. But so I, rather than saying, oh, are you you know, are you having anal sex with men in a park? I tend to be much more like, you know, is this, is, you know, uh, quite sometimes people in these situations, mm. you know, find that they meet new people and they're not quite sure. And, and, and it just opens the door so that, you know, I tend to leave it as like, look, if you ever want to talk about it or, you you know, you have any questions about it, 100% come and ask me. Like, there's no embarrassment here. This is a completely open forum. And often what happens is people then go away and then like three months later they'll book in again. And they say, oh, you know, you know, you mentioned about that. Well, I've actually met someone, you know, and it, it, I think just having that little, you sort of sow the seed that it's okay to talk talk to me about it and that's the mm. wonder, wonderful thing about general practice we're so lucky that we have that that we can bring people back you know and I think you know when I've worked in hospitals I missed that I missed that being able to sow a seed you know that they could come back and it might be six months it might be two years later people coming back to me saying oh you know you mentioned about da, 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 da. 
can we sort of, you know, can I, can I talk a bit more about it? And that, I think that's one of the brilliant things about general practice that we really mm. need to remember when things are sort of dark and difficult. You know, we have mm. that. We have that power. So, and I think Sharon talks a lot about that continuity being such an important thing, isn't it, for, for people to feel confident coming back. Yeah, yeah, and exactly what you're saying, Becky. Uh, one of the biggest biggest studies uh, internationally on this, the Global Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Behaviours, they found exactly that same thing. That was research conducted in 29 countries, I think, and one of the key findings were that if an individual is sort of asked about a sexual health and wellbeing issue in a generic way um, like that, then they were more likely to seek help, you know, mm. up to five years later on when a, when an issue did occur. And it's it's giving permission, isn't it? It's yeah. opening the conversation and, and giving permission to talk about the topic. Yeah. And we often talk about that. We've talked about it in the article, but... <clears throat> this sort of dance that happens in the consultation where, you know, you're wanting to ask something, but you're kind of wanting them to tell you and they're wanting you to ask. And you're in this sort of weird situation and, and um, you know, the, the evidence shows that pa- the patients actually really want us to be asking them, you know, whereas the doctors really want the patient to be bringing it up. And so if no one brings it up because everyone's awkward, then the, the sort of the issues just get swept under the carpet and no one does anything about it. And I think it's, you know, all of these things that we deal with in terms of sexual sexual well-being and ageing, they're such simple things to sort, you know. They're, you know, they're really, isn't it, Sharon? It's not rocket science. It's not kind of like, you know, dramatic, you know, drug therapies for, for crazy, you know, conditions. The stuff we do and stuff we advise is so simple, but it can be have a dramatic impact on someone's ability to, have, to be intimate with their partner or with multiple partners or with themselves, you know. And I think that's so, so important, Um for everybody really you, you know, see that moment in a consultation is like a sort of pause like a second where you're kind of like <laughs> facing off of each other and then... <laughs> yeah. I'm always running late of course so the temptation is to dive in yeah. and say okay right yeah. okay see you book again if yeah. you need anything else yeah um, but I guess if you just leave it another few seconds it can come out and, and you know like I'm I'm sounding like I'm perfect, but um, I was just thinking about this on Wednesday. I was having a, you know, it was Wednesday afternoon. I was really, I was knackered and I'd had like lots of very difficult consultations early on in the afternoon. And I was midway through and there were four patients waiting in the waiting room. So you've got that dreaded like four waiting and the patient comes in and it's, it was it was a, a consult all about like blood pressure. And, um, but there were lots of things, lots of bits to it. Like he'd got a raised Q risk and um, there were some of the, sort of other other bits I kind of needed to to deal with in that 10 minutes and I was like come on you've just got to talk about it because you started him on a new medication and you've got to talk about this you know the impact on you know erections because I would normally talk about that and I just was like you know what I just can't today I just can't do it and and it's fine because I know I'm going to see him in a month but you know I just was like I'm not in the zone right now to do it and and, um Sharon was it you and um Professor Gott that wrote the one about the uh, article about um opening a can of worms like, yeah, and I think that's exactly it, is that this fear of, like, I just, do you know what, I just don't want to go there. I don't want to open this can of worms. I'm tired. I need to get through this surgery. I need to go and pick my kids up. You know, it's that kind of... So, you know, I just think if we can... You know, I always think about 80-20. If 80% of the time I'm trying to raise these awkward subjects, then most of the people that I see will get, at some point, get the subject raised. But that's definitely a fear, isn't it, that, that some of the GPs that you spoke to um, said they're worried about opening up a can of worms... Yeah, I could definitely talk about that a bit more. Yeah, yeah, well, that's exactly it. I mean, and that was about 20 years ago, one of the first projects that we did. Um, and it was about the fear of sort of what if the patient tells me something and I don't know what to do with it, or it becomes this massive, massive thing that I'm unskilled for, I haven't been trained in, uh, and then how do I manage that? So some of the GPs that we talked to actually didn't raise the topic. They didn't ask about it. They, did, they just kind of avoided it because it was kind of easier uh, in terms of the time uh, restrictions of the consultation in terms of not knowing what to do with the information that the patient could disclose, um, which is it's, it, like, it's, it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Because we know it takes the patient from that side of things. It takes them quite a while to actually pluck up the courage and to get to the GP, and there's often a delay in that patient treatment-seeking journey, um, and they try other things first. And uh, I guess the kind of response of the GP, GP is really, really important here as well, but recognising that it is within that kind of restriction of the, the consultation and how tight time is at the minute and the other things that are going on at the time. But, but yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we're going to ask you more about that when we come back after this quick break. Mm-hmm. 
can I just ask a question about um it's really interesting like when um to bring these issues up with patients and when you can, you know, if the information is not being actively sought out by a patient, um, you know, you, you mentioned when you're, um, uh, Rebecca, when you're starting antihypertensives and, um, you know, the situations where I, I'm by no means perfect at this, but the kind of common scenarios where it occurs to me that this is something I should ask about are those kind of classic, consul- you know, the prescription rest for requests for um, medication for erectile dysfunction or um, someone coming in to talk about uh, vaginal dryness and those sorts of things is, is when I'm prompted and I'm like, actually, this is a really po- important part of this consultation. But I'm sure there are loads of others Um scenarios where this should this should be on GP's radars to kind of bring up um do you either of you can you sort of help us um sort of figure out what when those should be yeah I mean, well I mean you can talk about sex in any consult like you know if you really yeah. want to you can pretty much drag anything through so you know mental health you know, you can talk about yeah, sex, you know, often, um, uh, you know, past traumas and things like that can come up. Um, antidepressants, you know, the impact of antidepressants on, uh, you know, ability to orgasm or, um, you know, have, um, you know, ejaculation. I mean, there's so many, you know, we've classically got the blood pressure stuff. Um, I always talk about sex in any menopause consult. Yeah, I just think that, you know, should be done. Um I try to bring it up in most of my hypertension, you know, uh, health checks, diabetes checks, you know, those type of things. But um, what I think is really interesting is the work. It was it's Sue Malter, isn't it, that, that we wrote the author with, um, that we wrote the article with, who she was talking once in one of our meetings about um, like a checklist. Do you remember? She said she's de- they've developed like a checklist, haven't they? Which I just thought was absolutely fantastic. So it's like a it's a, a sort of. Uh, it's like a pro forma, isn't it, for people with chronic chronic disease that the that and it talks about sexual well being and intimacy in there, and you give it to the patient. It's almost like a permi- permission to bring it up. So you, you you know we are tight for time. It's not something you can bring up all the time. But having having those, I think it was that it was what Sue was saying, wasn't it? It was, Sharon? yeah, yeah. And Sue's uh, based in Australia, so that's some research that they did with GPs and primary care nurses, I think, and um, came to that sort of conclusion that that would be a really useful way of starting the conversation or something that you fill in prior to the consultation, I think. So it gives an indication to the, the GP the, the topics that you do want to talk about. And it helps overcome that sort of difficult um, thing of raising it yourself or having to ask that question if you do feel a bit embarrassed. Yeah. That permission and that sort of space is already there, I yeah, guess. Yeah, and whether we could use something like, you know, we're already using Acurix. Then if you guys use Acurix in your practices, you know, to send out pro um, ear flurries and things, which are like, um, Sharon, they're kind of, you probably have them from your GP practice. They're ways of filling in um, questionnaires. You know, whether we could use, I'd really like to see sexual well-being in those pro formas, like when we're, you know, when we're doing, especially long-term disease management, chronic disease, um, I really feel like they sh- those questions should be in there because even if you don't discuss it in your GP consult, at least it gives permission to say, actually, this is an important life, you know, this is a priority in your health, you can come and talk to us because um, often it gets deprioritised, doesn't it? So that AccuRx is a, it's a text messaging system, isn't it, that's quite well used in, in, in England and probably the UK at the moment. Um, I, I, agree, I agree with that. I mean, my, my worry is with this that, I think we've done it with alcohol and in, in, in my old practice, like we'd ask every new patient, like, would you like to talk more about alcohol? But then of course, if you then don't follow up on those who say yes, then you're, you're, you're creating that this, another problem, aren't you? That actually I'm saying I want to talk about something, but then I, the doctor doesn't seem interested, you know, and, and so, so letting the person down. But the thing about alcohol is uh, no one wants to be told by their GP, drink less, but mm people want to hear have sex more so I think people you know giving permission like to say well I you know not everyone. I think do you know what I mean well not everyone but but or you know like intimacy or you know the I think um when we're talking about alcohol they're obviously going to come to us and we're going to say can you you need to drink less whereas actually by saying we can help you with your sexual well-being there's a positive outcome from that so I think they're more likely to come and raise it um, I was actually just going to ask about your approach to consultations where, you know, after some initial questioning, proactive questioning and that, in that kind of dance with patients, it it comes up that, um, people are experiencing grief about loss of sexual function, either in themselves 
or in a partner, not necessarily because the partner has died, but just because, you know, they have had a change in their sexuality or they've had, maybe the partnership has ended or, or maybe, um, they have a medical problem that's interfering or a prescription that's interfering. Just again, curious how you would approach that kind of, I don't know, sadness or, or really people grieving the loss of a certain kind of sexual function. Yeah. Well, I've got ideas. Sharon, have you got anything that you think for that, that people would... Because you, you, you talk about sort of, um, that sort of grief of, of loss yeah, with function. Yeah. I've certainly heard that quite often, actually, talking to individuals, including younger women. Cause some of the research that I've been doing is, is with younger women that experience sexual problems and they sort of grieve that loss of intimacy that's within the relationship, even though they've got a partner who is a sexual partner. But if they experience desire loss and they're not sexually mm-hmm. active, they can definitely experience that as a grief uh, and a loss. Um, and I, I guess it's acknowledging it, isn't it? Do you know, because I do hear it with older adults as well, people who are single and can't find a partner, and then there's kind of older adults in a relationship, but they're not in a sexual relationship with that partner. And it, there's a lot of ways this can impact people psychologically, have an impact on the well-being, impact on the relationship. Um, and, and for me, it sounds like they just want to have that acknowledgement that this is actually happening to them and any kind of support that they can get to help them to deal with that, whether that's from the GP side of things or whether that's from more of a counselling side of things. Um, but I don't know how it's approached in practice itself, yeah. Becky. So the way, the way I tend to talk about it is I talk about, um, like, pathways to intimacy. So, um, w- like, when you're young and everything's functioning well and, you know, there's no, um, you might not, you know, no issues, you, it's a quick pathway to intimacy, isn't it? You have sex, you know, penis and vagina or penis and bum or whatever you put, whatever you do, um, whatever, which body part. But um, it, it's, a, it's a different pathway to intimacy. And what tends to happen when there's a a sexual problem so whether it be you know pain uh, might be vaginal pain hip pain back pain you know erectile dysfunction um you know changes in libido is that we um we really try to avoid that you know I'm going to say penis and vagina because I'm just using that as an example, but obviously there's lots of other different types of sex. But we we use penis and we avoid that potential of having penis and vagina sex because, you know, that's causing pain or that's causing an embarrassment or there's some problem. And so what we then do is we then um, stop anything that then might lead to that. So we then stop, like, passionately kissing because we're like, oh, God, but I don't want to lead them on because I don't want to do that bit. And then you stop passionately kissing. So then you stop kind of... When they go to cuddle you on the sofa, you sort of you know, you used to tighten up a bit because, like, oh, I don't want that next stage to move on to, you know, moving towards that sort of, um, you know, penetration type issue. And so what people find is that they start to sort of, their relationships have become, they start to become distant from their partner and they lose that intimacy because they associate any sort of form of intimacy with then leading to this thing that they don't want to happen. And so... So talking about like different ways to inter- sort of different pathways to intimacy, I think is really really important. And so um, what I really encourage my patients to do is to actually talk to the other half about it. And and it's incredibly difficult, you know, it, it's a hard thing to talk about. But actually having that conversation, saying, look, I, it's really painful when I have sex, or it's really uncomfortable, or it's dry, or you know, you know, or I'm having erection problems, you know. I'm worried about that part, but I still really want to do the other things. I want to cuddle. I want to kiss. I want to have massages. I want to, you know, like do the things that make us feel kind of intimate as a couple. Um, And sometimes having that conversation and just taking that pressure off of that end result, if we just remove that and say there's loads of other stuff that that is important to keep our relationship intimate um, that doesn't involve that that sort of end game can suddenly open up this huge area for people you know I often say like go out for dinner together like hold hands you know kiss in the park you know these are things that just make you feel like rejoined together as a couple um and even if you know for whatever reason you know there's there's things as can you know cancer treatments there's lots of things that mean you can't physically have you know penetrative sex but god that there's so much else 
to intimacy that doesn't involve that. So for me, I talk about like just different pathways to intimacy. And sometimes having those conversations just helps people then have conversations with their partners or even conversations with themselves about what what turns you on as an individual you know is it reading like you know I don't know 50 shades or whatever it is that like gets you going like that's the thing that you need to be doing and so um yeah that's where I tend to start and and you know grief is such a such a you know it's such a difficult emotion to to deal with but talking about it is definitely the one that will help dispel it um and you might always have that grief or that little bit of sadness that you know that side of your you know sexual relationship is you can't do but opening up the world of all the other stuff you can do makes that feel a little bit less painful I think so um yes that's kind of where I tend to go when I'm talking to people about things um in a bit of a long-winded way (laughs) no that's super helpful and super interesting I think um and one thing you're raising there is obviously the communication between the patient and their partner which seems paramount yeah but if you've never talked about sex you know especially some of the maybe the people who are sort of in their 70s and 80s you know might have come from generations where you don't talk about sex like and it's hard to then start talking about sex it's hard enough when you you know even myself who's someone who you know openly talks about sex you know it's hard for me sometimes to raise things with my husband because you know it's just a different thing it's a very different um you know you don't want to offend people, you don't want to, you know, it's really tricky, isn't it? Um, and, you know, I often think about, you know, we talk about Joy and Frank, don't we? Because their story is really useful to think about, isn't it? That he's, I think, Sharon, he's got erectile problems, hasn't he? And then starts, they start sort of, that was always a very active part of their love life. And then, you know, sorry, Joy and Frank are the are the couple that, um, that Pete has, has drawn pictures of um, that we talk about in the um, art exhibition. But I often think about them, you know, think about what, what they're going through in terms of their journey to, like, finding each other again. Um, Tell us more about the story. So I feel like we need to get the full story of Joy, yeah. particularly as we can't break confidentiality. Well, Sharon's right? best. Like, she can tell you the story, you know. <laughs> I can tell you the story, but it won't make up for the way that it actually looks, no. the images. So it's, yeah. the, it's the, we've got 12 images of Frank and Joy as they're dealing with that sexual problem, which is erectile dysfunction. And they're in a loving, long-term relationship, an older working-class couple. And, um, you know, they, they're still really, really intimate and close, but this becomes a problem and... The exhibition shows them trying different things to sort of uh, rectify it, I guess. I think they do. She goes to an Anne Summers party, buys all sorts of different sex toys. They try uh, dressing up and role play and stuff like that, buying kinky underwear. So this is all done with the kind of humour that comes with Pete's work. And But in the end, she, they end up going to the doctors and getting a, a prescription for, a, you know, a, a Viagra and that helps. And then... It has a happy ending. They're cuddling again on the sofa. They're playing footsie under the table. But I think one of the things that Becky's uh, raised there that's really important is those acts of intimacy and that we can get intimacy and enjoyment and pleasure from other things that are the actual, what we perceive as the sex or the penetrative types of sex. And we do find that as we get older, the intimacy can become more important than those actual acts of sex as well uh, for the reasons uh, described already that maybe people can't engaging sexual activity maybe it's difficult to have an erect penis or there's vaginal issues or any kind of issues around that that make it difficult but uh, yeah intimacy is key isn't it and I think encouraging people to explore their intimacy in in any way that they can is, is really important even to see that intimacy might be something that they didn't know was intimacy you know like kissing in the park or just walking around holding hands and things like that those intimate acts can help to reconnect people is that, I guess that's something to to put in that consultation around Viagra or sorry, not Viagra, um Sildenafil, other other brands available. <laughs> um prescribing. Like it's tempting, isn't it, to assume that the, the patient who's com- maybe come in to request that specifically knows what you know, as long as you tell them what to do and when to take the drug, they just go off and get on with it. Like, is that okay? Am, am I okay just to do that? Or or should I I don't know. I, I I probably got a bit of my feminist hat on, and I think it, I get a bit annoyed because I think so much so much money has been spent on men's erections, like how to plump a penis, but we don't really look at women's. Like, there's very little research around like women's you know ability to have sex, so whether it be libido or um, you know a lot of the vaginal issues that women have. Um, and so what I what I fear is that men 
plump up the courage, they come and see their GP, they tend to go and see their male GP and say, oh, I've got erection problems, get some diabetes, blood stone, give them some, you know, um, sildenafil and, um, and they go away. But then what about the the woman or the man on the other end like you know what what about their partner they're going back to like you know there are important things to talk about like things like lubricant you know foreplay sexual arousal you know all these different things that kind of come into the conversation and I think it's hard to have those especially when you're in that zone of like I'm going to medicate medicate this problem mm-hmm. it, it's hard mm-hmm. to then go also you know how does your partner feel about it or you know like um it's a diff- it's a really difficult conversation to have and, I, and I'm not expecting everyone to kind of go away and be like I'm going to talk about sex and well intimacy and well-being in every single consultation but um I think it's just always having that in the back of your mind like what who's on the other end of this you know so to speak um you know I think it's important and I and I wonder how much like sometimes the answer is and I I you know, I, I know this is really, really complicated, but, you know, I wonder how much sometimes the answer is that actually, um, a relationship is coming to an end. Like, like maybe part of, like, I guess what I'm asking is to what extent when you, when sexual problems are raised, is it actually because there's broader unhappiness with the relationship? And this is kind of a symptom or a window for people to kind of talk about, I'm actually just thinking that my partnership is not working anymore because I think we've been having this conversation in the context of, you know, there is a couple and actually maybe this is a symptom that the partnership itself is kind of no longer wanted or desired or working. Yeah, I mean, I think you got to be careful not to equate like problems with like sex to being not being attracted to your partner because I think that's sometimes that I think that's a trap that we can fall into even ourselves like, oh God, I can't get an erection. Um, I, therefore I'm not attracted to my partner you know and, and that's a dangerous route to go down and I think that could end up with you know a whole host of whole host of problems you know sexual problems happen regardless of how you feel of your partner um yes there might be communication issues and if you're maybe not able to communicate with your partner then maybe there might be some relationship issues but I definitely don't, don't think sexual pro- you know like like changes in libido you know there's the that doesn't mean you're not attracted to your partner anymore it just there are you know I think people fear that oh um, am I not attracted to my partner anymore because I'm you know I've lost that sexual desire but we see that so much around the menopause don't we we see all the hormone shifts that happen even people on contraceptive pills for example you know changes in your sex drive um are almost independent to your the way you feel about your partner and it's easy to almost say oh well it must be must be them it must be our relationship but I think um it's a dangerous route to go down because you know yeah, there might be communication problems, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that a sexual dysfunction means that your relationship is done. I think there's so much more to it than 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 that. Um, I don't know if you th- what you think, Sharon. Yeah, just thinking about that, Becky. Um, and I think that's what makes the communication within a relationship difficult because you're thinking, if I talk about my sexual loss of sexual desire, is my partner going to think that it's something to do with them, that I don't fancy them anymore? And that can create an obstacle to communication. And it, and it does actually exemplify why it's important to have those conversations, if you can, to reassure the partner that it's nothing like that and to get rid of some of those kind of myths and misinformation, I think, that surround this area but it's such a private topic sex isn't it and you know it's a taboo topic when we talk about certain communities and generations that those conversations are difficult to have but just talking here and listening to how openly we're talking about it you can see that you can bust those myths quite easily there and then so I think it's a really important message that we need to get out and yeah. Can I can I ask something? Just picking up actually on what you were just saying, Sharon. Maybe this is a good time to talk about um, areas or people in whom you might find it harder to have these conversations. If you are making assumptions, say for example about I don't know someone coming from a particular faith or background. When I was reading your article, it made me reflect on how. Um, I feel quite comfortable talking about sex with patients, but if it's someone, if it's an older person from my own community, I'm of an Indian background, that feels, I would find that a lot harder just because of a dynamic that's there in terms of, um, you know, some there are some patients who out of sort of respect I call uncle or auntie, which is weird, but that's just how it is. Um, and so I was thinking about, I was thinking about that uh, reading your article and wanted to ask you both about how can we get around those if there are those certain um, 
certain patience or certain assumptions or certain taboos that we might find hard to cross. And that, that could be for all sorts of reasons, but just interested in how you would kind of broach that. Well, I don't know, Isha, but like, I mean, I, um, yeah, I completely hear you. I think um, it, it just, it made me, it made me smile inwardly because um, there, it reminds me of a, a, a story from when I was a GP registrar. Um, so this is going back quite, quite, many years um and I it was I was like in that stage where I wanted to be able to talk about sex more but um I was um just finding my vocabulary and finding my sort of patter you know we all have a patter don't we in our GP clinics you know we're all different we all have a sort of patter that goes with it and I remember talking to this um he was sort of an older gentleman really this wasn't it wasn't in Sheffield it was North Yorkshire um and he was a brewery worker and he'd come in and he was on um like lots of different cardiac meds and I was like right I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him I'm gonna talk to him and I was getting myself all flustered and I was like oh god it's you know so awkward and I said to him so you know these medications you know um you know how are things in the bedroom and he looked at me like what on earth was I talking about? And he said, um, he said, oh, I don't know, love, like, I've got pink walls and a, a Laura Ashley uh, duvet. <laughs> and we both looked at each other and we were just like, oh, my goodness, like, we've just had such a, such a, like, <laughs> missed communication there. Because I was trying to use language to make him feel comfortable but not be too awkward. And I was, like, bright red, like a tomato. He was looking at me like, what are we talking about? And I said, like, oh, no, like, sex, you know, erections. And, and it just kind of came out. And then we were both, like, absolutely mortified. And, and I always think back to that episode because, you know, there are definite people that you feel more uncomfortable talking about. And so that's when I always go into the abstract. I always go into the abstract of now of, you know, sometimes, you know, men come to see me and they might experience, you know, um, these medications can sometimes, you know, cause problems with, like, sexual performance or, you know, that type of thing. You know, I, I, te- I tend to find, if I'm finding someone that, that I'm more uncomfortable, um, I mean, you know, my women who I talk about menopause, you know, I, I think women I, f- I feel a lot more comfortable talking to, so I tend to sort of say, you know, is, is sex a thing that's, you know, you want to talk about today? Is it something that, that's on your radar? Um, and, you know, that that's an easier way of talking about it. But sometimes there are some, you know, certain certain men that feel more uncomfortable so I tend to go quite abstract and that seems to help the conversation um but also like if you don't feel comfortable you don't have to do it like there's no one there's no one there telling you know there's no sort of tick box you have to talk about sex in your console we're just saying it you know it might help with that sort of you know general well-being if you can but there are other ways to do it like we talked about with the with the proformers and things but um yeah I, I hear you and I think it's okay to feel uncomfortable this isn't you know and and everyone will have different you know different people they feel more uncomfortable with um and and that's okay and and, you know you can either lean into it if you're having a good day or lean away from it if you're having a shocking surgery I think you know you just have to go go with what's happening in your clinic almost um as a sort of related question I guess um one of the things that again I think your article made me think about are those situations where it doesn't even cross your mind to like ask ask questions or to consider asking questions um that are relevant, you know, you make an assumption about patients. So I'm particularly thinking about things like making an assumption about patient sexuality or sexual preferences or the kinds of activities they might be sort of doing, you know, um, how, I, I suppose this is just a question for everybody to reflect on themselves individually, but is there a way to kind of, um, or any tips you have for, I guess, like checking some of those, um, I guess, unconscious biases almost, like how can we get better at not making assumptions about people I suppose yeah well I have to, like with my research I often talk about um like so so as GPs we don't come out of general practice training as being like a you know the same uniform like blobs of doctors we're yeah. all we all come with our own personal belief systems and the problem the problem with personal belief systems is that they can massively affect how you provide care to your patients. So um, when I think when I talk about personal belief systems, I talk about things like, you know, your views on sexuality, you know, um, faith sometimes can have a, an impact, you know, beliefs around, you know, we all, you know, 
um, some internalised racism, internalised homophobia. You know, the, the, these things that we don't necessarily even realise that we're we're doing have such a huge effect when it comes to anything sexual and reproductive health. You know, our views on abortion, our views on contraception, our views on emergency pills, you know, all of these things are, are sort of internal to us. And I think what I often ask people is just just have a think about where you are and like what is your belief system? Like what 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 things do you that, that are inside of you that might affect people accessing care? And one of the things that Sharon's talked about before in the past in some of her papers is um especially around sexuality, you know, GPs who are either silencing or openly um derogatory about people's sexual preference um and, and that's just you know one aspect of of um where our personal belief systems can dramatically impact someone's ability to access um because there was a paper you did wasn't there um sharon about like G- gp's responses to talking about sexuality wasn't it that's right yeah so talking about sexuality uh with individuals that weren't heterosexual or not in heterosexual relationships and some of the barriers that they experienced were around not knowing what to ask so feeling like they couldn't ask any questions because they didn't know what type of sexual behaviors that that individual kind of was getting into and 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 things like that and just having a lack of understanding and a lack of lack of confidence and of course we know that those kind of biases that do come into the consultation the biases that we hold ourselves around age around race around sort of disability uh, and around our sexual orientation and gender identity but I think they can easily be well we can try and overcome them the more we know about these different sort of uh, excuse me communities and their backgrounds and and things like that the more we kind of normalize the conversation and have those open and honest conversations that we learn and it breaks down that fear and I think that works on both sides as well. So we've got the, the practitioner side, but also on the patient side as well, because that is one of the barriers to, to seeking help from a patient perspective is the fear of how they're going to be reacted to or responded to. And, you know, um, and the research tells us that when we're feeling anxious or fearful about something, then we're hypersensitive and we're picking up on any negatives. So any slight kind of remark or or gesture by the GP when we've actually disclosed that we've got a sexual problem, we can see that as something a bit more powerful than it's actually meant to be. So I think the biases do come into play from both sides of things. But um, talking about them like this on the podcast and in the paper, I think that helps you know just to raise that and, and I think language like we mentioned in the paper like you know it's not it's not it's not like rocket science to say partner rather than husband you know I I, I, I still like I, I just would I, I never say you know is it your girlfriend boyfriend husband wife I always say partner and then look at what you know pronoun they put you know it, it, it's a really simple thing um but I always say partner I always have done I don't know if it's because battered into me when I used to work in sexual health clinic but I, I would never say you know in any setting you know how is your wife I'd always say how's your partner and then pick up on how how they respond and it's just one super simple thing that you know because if you say to someone who you know is in a you know a, a, you know has a, has a you know man who has sex with men you know same-sex couple if you say your wife you're automatically shutting them down, you know, and you're, you know, uh, there are some some of the papers that I've read uh, that um, are in my thesis, you know, there, there's really good evidence of doctors silencing people's sexuality, uh, you know, and sort of saying, oh, well, you know, all these problems are due to, you know, because you, you're gay or, you know, like, we forget that we're probably quite um the fact that you guys are doing a podcast the fact that you know your listeners are are listening to a podcast about sex probably automatically selects you into a group of you know medics who are um, open-minded and and wanting to think about this but you know what we see through the research is that there is a a large group of, of of practicing um uh gps out there who are shutting people down when it comes to sex who are being derogatory towards older adults when it comes to sexual well-being who are you know um you know don't you know have really quite offensive views when it comes to sexuality you know but the problem is how do we reach those people because those aren't the people that are you know doing the thinking that you guys are doing now you know about what what personal belief systems do you have you know they're not it's not on their radar you know they're they're not thinking about this and and I think some of my work is like how do we reach those people that 
um, you know, whenever I do talks, you know, I talk a lot about contraception. I talk about a lot about um, you know, menopause and, and all, all different sorts of things. And the people that come to my lectures, I've already got, they're already on board. They're mm. already the ones that are doing the great stuff already. So how do we do it's, it? What, how do we get the others? Yeah, I don't Where know. Have you got like, there? I mean, well, I so I tend to like a lot of the the stuff we're doing. Um, like I'm doing some work around HIV, um, looking at. Uh, so primary prevention, so general practice, um, trying to improve the health outcomes of people living with HIV. Um, and we're purposely targeting GPs and practice nurses who wouldn't normally attend these type of things. So we're just mm. randomly recruiting people who aren't the people that would normally come. Um, and that's really, like, that's really good. Like, yeah. you know, you, you hear very different views to the views that you hear from the, the people you normally come through your, um, you know, through your lectures and things. So um, I, I think have conversations in your practices. Like, I really think it's important that practices have a big conversation with practice nurses, GPs saying, you know, <coughs> we want to create an environment where people can talk about sexuality, can talk about sex at any age, you know, that we are open to talking about it. Um, and, but have having that conversation in a practice with all mm. your partners because mm. we all know partners that I, you know our, my practice I work is fab um but I've worked in other practices where um you know I, I've you know I've seen bigotry like you know bigotry mm. and mm. racism and other things that um we shouldn't be experiencing in general practice so have conversations with your practices I think is the biggest piece of advice I can give um to and and listen to what their views are because you often be quite shocked you know mm. when you hear things like oh they shouldn't be having sex over 70 you're like blimmin heck you know mm. like have the conversations I think it's really important I think we've we've probably I've been writing down all these. Uh, these are future podcasts. There's definitely one there about how to, <laughs> you know, more broadly, you know, call out maybe other GPs in in in, in this sort of situation. And I, I want to do one on patter as well. I like that. How to how how do we all get our patter as GPs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all different. Like that's the yeah. great thing about it. And I think that's the good thing about being like a I want to say like a midlife GP. So I'm probably they say, isn't it? Like when you're into 50, like 15 years of being a GP, you're kind of hitting your like sweet spot because it's where you get your patter you kind of know lots of stuff um and then you kind of forget the stuff but you still got your patter <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um yeah sharon is there more because i used so much that you've you've done on this and and there's probably hours we could we could go into those but it's, it's, it's other other big areas we've missed yeah, yeah. So I guess from the exhibition in 2018, The Age of Love, I've been doing things outside of academia to try and encourage these conversations about sexuality and, and ageing. And, and one of the things that Becky's just mentioned is the three Ps, which is a tool for health and social care professionals to use that help them to have that conversation with their older patients. Um, and, and the P's stand for privacy, permission and practice and it's just about making sure that any conversations are taking part in that private setting so that the patient feels comfortable enough to disclose any issues they want to to talk about it's making sure that they know that they've got permission to talk about this topic as we've already mentioned today in this podcast that permission giving is really really important when it comes to sexual health and well-being but the third P is practice, and that's making sure that whatever we do in that conversation, we help them to feel comfortable. So we're practically sort of being open and we're being um, um, using active listening skills so that the, the individual feels that they can, can disclose. And that is just really sort of sim simple to remember, three Ps helping us to get into a position where people can have that conversation with us, helping us to hold that conversation if we so wish, and having an idea about the kind of generic and the specific questions that we can ask as well just in that moment. And it, it might be that a patient says that they don't, they've got nothing, they don't want to talk about it, it's not an issue, and that's fine, isn't it, Becky? As, as long as you've raised, you've given them the opportunity to talk, to talk about things, I think that's uh, the main thing, giving people the opportunity. They might not want to talk about it, or they might do and they talk about it or they might come back in months or years time and talk about it but mm. it's about giving that a sort of opening I think and I think the privacy thing is quite difficult in general practice because not because we, you know we shout things across the waiting room but um I don't know about you guys in your practices but we uh, the receptionists always ask for a, um, a, a sort of condition or like why they're why they're sort of coming to see you and because I you know, predominantly see um 
because I'm a GP with kind of special interest in sexual reproductive health, I predominantly see sexual um, or reproductive health problems. And a lot of my patients are like, I don't want to put, like vaginal problems on the mm. you know on the on the list and so I'm constantly saying to patients like just put anything say you've got a cough I don't care like put whatever you want on there but I think that's you know I often question like why you know why we ask that and I kind of get mm. why we do ask it like I get we're trying to sort of work out you know trying to have a bit of a prediction of what's coming through the door but I think when it comes to sexual well-being it's it actually makes it a lot harder for, for patients yeah. to, you know, because I have to say to a receptionist who they might even know because they're from the local community, oh, I've got a problem with my, you know, I've got an erection problem. That's really, like, it's mm. really uncomfortable for patients. So um, I think no, letting patients know that they don't have to tell the receptionist, they can say personal problem or they can say cough or they yeah. can say cold. I, it doesn't matter. Like, But I think from a privacy point of view, that's really... For general practice, I think that's one of the a, a barrier that we put in place for people. Um, so yeah, I just think it's it's an interesting thing to to think about. Yeah, I've certainly seen that, and you you, you wonder what yeah why we're sometimes being so almost difficult about that. And uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be easy just to have a script which said, "Would you mind, or would you be willing to say anything about what what the the appointment's about?" That's it. And they can just yeah. say no. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, have you, but I'd love to hear just before we, we finish, any other like big tips or big big things that we can uh, listeners can can take away from this? There's been so much that I've learnt and 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 took from this already, but uh, yeah, any practical things for, for either of you? Maybe Becky first. Well, I guess for me, it's practice. Like, even if you're doing it, you know, when you're going for a walk or you're sat in the car or whatever, um, get a phrase that you feel comfortable using. You know, like I've mentioned before about, oh, you know, some men that start on beta blockers find that this is a problem. You know, get comfortable because what you don't want to be is in the consult and then having to figure out the language because otherwise you'll make a mess of it like I did asking about this chap's, you know, um, bedroom, what his bedroom looked like. You know, it like get get a comfortable patter that you um you know that you can just use into consultation because if if you're relaxed and you're just you know very gently sort of asking the question then the patient will feel relaxed and they might say no it's not a problem or don't talk about it but you've done it you've said it and like actually it can have um you know when 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 people do come to you for help and you manage to help them it's incredibly rewarding when they come back and everyone's got big smiles and everyone thinks you're amazing because you you know you've helped them out with a few a few things but so I think my biggest piece of advice is 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 just get a phrase get comfortable with a phrase that helps you bring it up in a consult um, that would be my biggest piece of advice. Thank you. Like it, yeah, good. <laughs> and uh, Sharon? I think, yeah, building on what Becky said there, it is about, well, it's about giving permission, isn't it, to ask those questions and have some pre-prepared questions, some generic ones that are easy to ask and practising asking them. But I think being proactive as well, and that's come out throughout all this discussion in the podcast, because we know that if we're proactive about this topic, then it might actually help in the long run. If we're supporting someone with a, a sexual issue, uh, then it might actually cut down on their need for services, because there's a strong relationship between our sexual health and well-being and our general health and well-being as well, you know, in, in both directions. So we can think that perhaps if we're supporting uh, their sexual health and well-being, that maybe their need for consultations and services actually reduces and that's you know a benefit for us it's a benefit for the patient because we're helping them improving their quality of life but it's also a benefit for the services we provide as well mm-hmm. thank you yeah. and the other thing just to mention is um sharon's website um that we've put in the it's in the article but it's a great resource if you want to just you know send it out to your patients for you know if someone does raise it and you're not quite sure what advice to give it's just a good place to signpost patients to. Um, oh, go on, Sharon. Well, well, we'll put it in the show notes. But what, what is the what is the website address? <laughs> okay, so we've got uh, agesexandyou.com. And that is a, a free-to-use public health website for practitioners and for the patients and public um, just to get a bit more information about the potential sexual changes with age and some resources there to help them to deal with that as well. Because I know that sometimes just having that kind of resource and having a look at what people are going through and whether or not this is kind of normal, yeah. you know, something we can expect with ageing can actually help people sort of make the decision whether or not they need to seek any mm. professional help. Sounds like a useful, like hour of cpd i guess for your appraisal or something <laughs> as well um and the website for the exhibition 
Oh, gosh. Well, we haven't got a website specifically for the exhibition, but we've got one that will take you to information about the exhibition, okay. and that's ageoflove.org. Brilliant. And should we, uh, should we mention Joan ooh. Price as well? Who oh, is a bit of an idol of ours. Oh, go on. <laughs> you, you know more about her. I'll let you tell, tell everyone about Joan. Oh, okay, so Joan, Joan Price, is based in the US and she, I don't know if she's in her 80s now, but she was definitely in her 70s the last time um, I was speaking with her. But she is a wealth of information about all things sexual health and sexual well-being and ageing. And uh, she has lots of advice for individuals and for practitioners as well about the kind of things that people can experience as they get older and how to deal with them and the resources that are available for them. Uh, she is a wealth of knowledge and she's brilliant. I think she did. Does she do YouTube or something? I can't. There's she does. She got some video, hasn't she? Some like sort of agony ant type video yeah. style. I probably wouldn't watch them on your um, NHS um, <laughs> on your no NHS computer. Probably something for a home <laughs> one, but um, <laughs> but yeah, she's a, she's a, a great resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. What was the name again? Joan. Joan, Joan Price. Price. So okay, that's JoanPrice.com. And, of course, bmj.com for the practice pointer that you, <laughs> you've written about this um, in the education pages. I will put all of these in the show notes. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. Thank you, Sharon. We'll... Um, we should have you back on i feel like we've more to talk about this and other subjects um, it's been lovely to talk to you yeah oh, thank you for having us yeah thank you it's been a pleasure um so and thank you jenny and navjoy um yeah see you next time thanks tom see you next time and <laughs> navjoy yeah thanks so much this has been so informative and uh given me lots to think about um so thank you um, so, and I hope your listeners have enjoyed it. Uh, please do rate us on your podcast app. Um, tell your colleagues, mention it at the practice meeting and, uh, and uh, listen for our next episode in a couple of weeks. Uh, bye for now.